Welcome to episode three of the Leaders in Learning podcast series, a product of the Collaborating Learning and Adapting Team at the United States Agency for International Development. Starting from a theory that effective learning organizations are more impactful development organizations, Leaders in Learning is a seven-part podcast series that explores promising practices in building learning organizations through interviews with a variety of knowledge management and organizational learning leaders in the international development sector. My name is Stacy Young, and I'm a Senior Learning Advisor in the Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. I also lead the Collaborating Learning and Adapting Team, and I have the good fortune of being able to host this podcast with my colleague and friend, Piers Bocock, Chief of Party of USAID's Knowledge Management and Learning Contract, also known as LEARN. If you listened to previous episodes, then you already know that this series is based on conversations and interviews that Piers and I conducted with 10 thought leaders in knowledge management and learning. Because it would be impossible to include all the wisdom in every episode, each show shares selected audio clips from three or four of the interviews to review and discuss in response to a key question with which we've been grappling. The focus of this episode, our third in our Leaders in Learning series, is on one of the most challenging questions that we as leaders in organizational learning face on a regular basis, namely, what is the role of evidence and data in organizational learning efforts? This is a complex topic, and we can't possibly do it justice in a single podcast episode, but hopefully we'll bring in some interesting perspectives during this podcast to add to the large amount of content we have on the subject on usaidlearninglab.org. Right, Piers? Indeed. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So, Piers, as you know, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. And today we're going to hear clips from three of our leaders in learning that respond in various ways to three different themes that emerged in our conversations with them related to this topic. We will be hearing from Allison Evans. She's the Chief Commissioner on the Independent Commission on Aid Impact. We'll hear from Carrie Albright, Chief of Research Facilitation and Knowledge Management at UNICEF, and Duncan Green again, Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam. We'll start with Allison Evans discussing ICHI's review of learning at DFID, the How DFID Learns report. Then we'll hear from Carrie Albright and then Duncan Green. Well, I th- that, that review really um, started from, I think, the sort of the axiom that actually effective learning is important for effective development. And what it sought then to do was to assess the extent to which the department was able to follow through on that um, um, and, and, and to put that into practice. I mean, I think it may be obvious to, to people that are listening to this podcast, but I think that if you, if you really want to learn lessons, really want the knowledge that you get from lesson learning to, to be applied, you have to resource it and it has to be systematic. It can't just happen on an ad hoc basis. Um, and obviously, if it's done well, then investing in knowledge management and learning can result in positive and, and tangible um, impact. And I think generally it also um, it helps in that it, uh, it can encourage and embed a culture of using evidence and, and decision making so that you improve future development results. Um, but also when, you, when you're systematic and, and when you sort of continuously integrate new knowledge, um, more than the sum of knowledge just held by individuals in, into an organizational thinking, I suppose, then I think that that really 
pays dividends in enabling you to adapt quickly to maybe be more agile or flexible and, and to be more innovative. Um, as long as you can actually systematically manage and share that knowledge, both about what's working and also what isn't, the successes and the failure side, which is often quite difficult. Um, that said, I do think that um, it's really quite essential to be able to demonstrate that, that link between learning and program or organizational effectiveness or impact, and to find the language that, that resonates um, that, that with others, especially for sort of buy-in from the top of the organization. Um, from the top of the organization. So, um, I mean, knowledge management in generally, or evidence learning, all of these terms are very poorly defined often, and there's a lot of confusion terminology. And I think you have to be able to find a way of, of taking these principles and translating them into issues that matter to, to senior leaders. Um, so things like influence results, value for money, economies of scale, doing more with less, all of those sorts of buzzwords, I think. And I guess within UNICEF, our, um, our buzzwords are obviously around human rights language of equity and justice. So things like leaving no one behind or reaching the hardest to reach, etc. Um, I mean, I guess generally I'd say that uh, in the change we're putting more and more emphasis on, on impact case studies, uh, working with independent uh, research evaluators, um, look at producing independent impact case studies to validate our own perceptions of impact. So we did a, a really interesting impact case study with Sarah Morton from the University of Edinburgh last year, looking at um, some of the impacts of our work on survivors of violence against children in, in Peru. And we found that you know, integrated learning and, and the partnerships and adaptive programming were absolutely essential to that program being as, 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 um, as impactful as it was. Um, and really interesting that we'd actually we discovered quite, um, quite a few outcomes were emerging even before a single research output had written of the way that that team approached um, the, the research. Um, and then similarly, you know, there's another uh, another bunch of colleagues here in the Chenti who work a lot on transfer projects, which is about um, um, rolling out cash transfers or the impact, impact, evaluating the impact of cash transfers throughout Sub-Saharan. Um, and they've been doing a lot of work on, on this busting um, and trying to sort of integrate robust learning um, um, through impact evaluation, counter myths such as you know people who receive cash transfers are going to drunk it all away or not enroll their children in, in education, etc. Completely wrong. And um, the empirical evidence emerging from that particular program is, you know, has, is so positive that it's led to um, whole-scale investment in cash transfers as a, as a mechanism by many governments across uh, sub-Saharan Africa being replicated elsewhere. So I think you, you need to you need to find a way of connecting this sometimes nebulous language with something that's very tangible for uh, for people that have to report on. So can I tell a quick yeah, story? please. So two young Save the Children program officers uh, get sent to Vietnam just after Vietnam had normalised relations with the US. The Vietnamese authorities were very suspicious of Yankees. Um, so they said, okay, you can, you've got three months to half malnutrition in these villages. Um, and the uh, Sternins, Jerry and Monique Sternin, um, thought, okay, well, we've been, I think they've been studying some course on positive deviance, let's give it a go. 
So they went to these villages, they got everybody together, and they said, uh, are the children malnourished here? And the villagers said, yes, that's why you're here. Um, are they all absolutely equally malnourished? Don't be ridiculous, of course not. Okay, so we want you to identify the ones which are least malnourished. So they did that, no problem. And then we want you to go and sit in the kitchen because we, they're all, you know, we're outsiders, we won't see any differences. We want you to see if there's anything different about those houses, about those households, which, which may explain why the kids are less malnourished. And they found people were feeding the kids from the bottom of the pot where the solid stuff is, whereas the tradition in that area was to feed the kids first with the watery stuff at the top. And some of them were putting in crabs and caterpillars from the paddy fields into the soup protein, right? Great, now that's all, all well and good. Now, if this was a typical aid project, you would then set up a crab and caterpillar raising program and you would projectize it. Because the Sonians had done their positive deviance stuff, they went on to the second stage, which is social learning. So all they did was get people to put up the results in the commune of what they'd found and, let, and say, go and have a look. And the other people in the village said, well, we can do that. And they have malnutrition in three months. No project. And that's the difficult bit is not projectizing something once you find an interesting outlier. And that was really, that, that, I, that really stayed with me, that story. Yeah. So Piers, I love this uh, collection of clips. We've joked a lot about Allison talking about it's axiomatic that better learning leads to better development. And not because we disagree with her at all, but because of the amount of effort that we have put into demonstrating, substantiating with evidence that that axiom. And it's funny because people will sometimes tell us, yeah, collaborating, learning, and adapting, it's common sense. That's just good management and so on. And we kind of agree, but what we see, of course, is that it doesn't always happen. And so when Carrie says you have to invest resources in it, you have to be systematic about it. That really tracks with our understanding as well. And then Duncan sharing the origin story of positive deviance and this great example of a learning approach that the Sternans took to their work, but then a simple mode of disseminating that learning somehow leading to uh, profound results. Well, we know that that doesn't happen in every instance. And um, I, I think one of the things that, that comes to the forefront in this collection of clips is how important learning is to better development. But there's a lot of variation, as we know, in terms of um, what the results are of investing in that. And I think that what we see is that, it, you know, Carrie's example of doing the myth-busting around cash transfers is is really important. Duncan's relating of the, the origin of positive deviance, another really important example. What we have found is that you need to put those alongside the systematic processes that Carrie is alluding to, that those are great examples of generating new knowledge, but then the things that we urge people to do in terms of developing learning agendas, engaging in pause and reflect activities so that they can grapple with new learning and really figuring out what their adaptive management processes will be so that they can translate that new learning into programmatic decisions. That's sort of a, a different ball of wax. I thought that all came through in a really interesting way in these clips. What did you think? Well, absolutely. I think that um, they support each other in a really nice way. I, I recall when we were talking to Allison, and there was just this 
lightness about her when she said, yes, of course, it's axiomatic that uh, good learning leads to better development. And not only was this such a, a refreshing sentiment, but this was coming from the independent commission that is assigned to measure the impact of, of aid. Right. And right. So, so that was just fantastic. And the fact that she said, okay, we, we, we believe this is the case, but how? And then we have these two examples mm-hmm. of how yeah. in very different ways. Um, and the point, I think, that really came out in Carrie's statement, which I think we have found all over the place, is it's all fine and dandy to say it has to be intentional, systematic, and resourced. We know that. Again, it, we get that in our guts. But you have to put it into a language that makes sense for people Mm -hmm. and show them that it works. So taking a look at the data to be able to demonstrate or discover what's working, and then it can be scaled up as in Mm -hmm. the the, the cash transfer example. Yeah. So she's really getting at at the development value proposition there. Exactly. Which is absolutely what we need, especially when we're talking to technical experts. That's what they want to know. What is the value proposition in development terms? That's what we all want to know. But I think there are some other dimensions of what she's saying as well. For instance, when she's talking about people who make decisions about resources, I think she mentioned that. Or maybe that was just my overlay because that's where we feel called upon to demonstrate evidence that better learning leads to better development. But I I do think that, you know, it can be taken as axiomatic, it can be assumed as as part of good management. But when it comes to making resource decisions, that's when we are called upon to demonstrate it in a different way. Absolutely. And I think um, that the last piece, Duncan's story, ties to this adapting viewpoint that I've seen come out of um, USAID's Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning over the last few years, which is a more complexity-aware approach to monitoring, evaluation, and learning, that there are other ways to find out what's working and what uh, what's not, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to be open to those. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll hear a little bit more on that theme from Duncan a little bit later. Our next set of clips addresses the value of an evidence and learning culture First, we'll hear from Carrie Albright, then Allison Evans, and then Duncan Green. Um, I mean, there have been initiatives over the years to try to slowly build this culture of of evidence. Um, We have an annual meeting that takes place called the Dream Meeting, which is, um, what's it stand for now, the acronym? It's Data Research, Evaluation, Analytics, and Monitoring. So specialists from all around the world um, in those areas get together and we share both sort of emerging knowledge, but also um, best practices and learning, etc. Um, and it is a slow drip, drip effect. And I think our political environment can be quite frustrating sometimes. But um, I think we recognize we recognize that this is the way that things are going. Um, and in our, our new strategic plan, we have an explicit change strategy where we, we mentioned that evidence is seen as a key driver of change for children. And I think UNICEF is certainly changing. We're evolving. We're recognizing, I think like many uh, multilateral donor agencies are recognizing that um, our role in national development on the world stage is changing. Um, we see our work moving more upstream, um, focusing I mean, as, as more and more countries gain middle income. 
Um, and so we very much see that our niche could be about being a knowledge broker for children. And if we really genuinely believe that that is our niche, then you can't even begin to imagine what that involves without thinking about learning. Well, I think it does it, does it so many ways, actually. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm always actually very impressed about with DFID is this sort of permissive culture it's managed to create around the importance of learning. You know, there are a lot of signals in the organisation that this matters. The moment, that sort of inflection point when they, they started to invest very heavily in evidence and using their research, very large research budget, to sort of begin to, to address evidence gaps, to link their own business case process to the need to draw on evidence and you know to sort of consider options and pull in learning from elsewhere that was a really important moment and it definitely um, sort of drove a change in the way the department um, uh, was able to to deliver on its objectives and also ultimately to capture to capture its results so the learning from failure thing I think it actually works better by accident. When you try and institutionalize it, you get into all sorts of problems. So Engineers Without Borders set up this famous website where you were supposed to bring your project failure and discuss it with the rest of the world, and surprise, surprise, no one came. Um, we had an awful uh, meeting a few years ago in Oxfam where we were all supposed to bring our failures and discuss it, and this is when I was head of the research team. So we dutifully came along with an appalling failure talked through in gory detail and everybody sort of smiled and then when it came their turn it was oh my failure is I worked too hard <laughs> you know so it was kind of, oh we really walked into that one so I think trying to institutionalize it hasn't worked very well it's better to say what have you learned you cover the same ground than, than where did you fail but you know an example of a failure that worked in Tajikistan we had um, a water project and it was supposed to be sustainable management of water and it was not working yeah people were knocking on the office door saying your well's broken can you come and fix it so yeah, it clearly wasn't getting sustainability. We commissioned an evaluation uh, which said, yeah, your, water, your water's rubbish, your water work is rubbish, and we published it. And that was the key thing. Then all the other donors said, yeah, yeah, our water work is rubbish too. What can we do about it? The Swiss stepped up, and eventually with 10 years of funding, and we now host a forum with 17 government ministries, all the donors, private sector, civil society, on water and sanitation, which has produced a new investment law, an interministerial committee, presidential commitment to co-fund water investment projects, you know, all built, all ba you know, triggered by, yeah, we, 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 this isn't working, what can we do? You know, and so, we'll make, you know, maybe we should be doing more of that. And, but somebody had to step up and be vulnerable first. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it's, and that's about personal leadership, personal sort of authority. Um, yeah, I remember working with a large UK supermarket and they said, we found child labour in our supply chain and we're going to publish it in our report, in our you know, um, rights report, and we're going to see what happens. And that was really risky for a big supermarket to just say, yep, we found child labour. Nothing happened. They didn't get any stick. All they got was praise from their peers. Now, sometimes that doesn't work, but it's interesting when it does because hmm. that enables other people to say, okay, child labour, let's talk about that. Well, Piers, one of the things that I like about that set of clips is that we got to hear your British accent on display. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> it's reminding me of how much fun it was to be in London with you interviewing Alison and uh, 
just revisiting some of your earlier days when you lived there. So these are these are three different takes on the intersection of learning and organizational culture, and they all revolve around a combination of the value that we place on learning and the role that we see that it has in development, and then what we do about that. So I liked Carrie talking about knowledge as a development resource and the changing role of donors in development that really the trend is away from service delivery and more acting as knowledge brokers. And then looking at what that means in terms of how our organizations operate, how we invest in learning. So one point that I think that Carrie and Allison both underscore is what it means to value knowledge as a development resource alongside our funding, and then how you translate that into organizational processes. So Carrie talking about the annual meeting to share knowledge and practices, and Allison talking about addressing evidence gaps and linking the business case to drawing on evidence. So really taking an intentional approach to learning and looking at how do we as donors engage in this as an activity, as part of our development effort. I think that's really important. Yeah, I I think that's right. And all three of them in their own way addressed something that we have seen in work with USAID and with our partners and with other donors this idea that there has to be a culture that makes it okay to learn, which means it's okay to identify what's not working, as long as we're getting something from that. So I loved this idea of, of the permissive culture uh, that Allison was talking about. And it was fun to have the bells in the background because that took me right back. It was dark, it was sort of windy and rainy, and Allison had stayed after hours mm-hmm. to, to have this wonderful interview with us in, this, in the old admiralty. Yeah, it was a beautiful building. Fantastic. And she was fun. so generous with her time. Yeah. And we we had this long walk afterwards where we mm-hmm. were talking all excitedly. So excited. And we thought we were recording it, and I had forget, failed to, to put the record <laughs> button. But anyway. Technology we, will always sink you. Exactly. Yes. So we, we can talk and we can interview. We can't always record as well as oh, possible, well. but that's why we have Amy. Anyway, um, let me get back to what I wanted to to say. So the other part was uh, I love this idea of an intentional meeting, what we might call a pause and reflect moment that um, Carrie talked about, this Mm -hmm. dream meeting. And I also have this sort of image of a a group of M&E folks saying, we're the dream team, Um, and, and making monitoring and evaluation something that is, you know, fun and aspirational and can even, you know, imply that it can help some of those dreams come true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Duncan's point is really important, I think, which is, yes, we have to be open to learn from failure, but we can't force it. It's it's sort of the flip side of success stories, isn't it? You know, we if we try to force something, then we're going to miss the actual learning in there. Is that did you get that? Yeah, I did. I'm, you know, I have been thinking a lot about this lately, um, this learning from failure thing, because it's a point of debate in our extended team. And I think also in uh, knowledge and learning generally, you know, for a long time, people said, well, you learn more from your failures than your successes. But then um, people started getting really interested in positive deviance, where you're learning more from successes and failures. And then people have horror stories like Duncan's to, to share a, about being invited to share failures and then feeling kind of set up. But then, you know, his other story where sharing the failure really blew the sector wide open and everybody started talking about what they were doing in the water sector. So I think the jury's out. Um, I think that 
you know, he was getting at, it kind of depends on um, whether that approach is useful or not. And it depends probably on some things that we haven't really surfaced yet. I think all three of them are really making an important point about two sides of a coin, the sort of culture or kind of nebulous enablers on the one side of the coin, and then these specific processes that you put in place in order to make learning happen on the other side of the coin. And that gets back to that first set of clips that we heard and that tension that we have in our conversations sometimes with our evaluation and monitoring colleagues and and others who may be assuming that by improving the quantity and quality of learning through monitoring, through evaluation, through research, through other types of analysis, that 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 by um, strengthening the supply of knowledge, that the learning makes its way into uh, programmatic decisions, and that's not not always the case, and that's why we focus on on the process piece. And I thought that came out really strongly in these clips. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's one more important thread that came through for me in these, and that is the value of sharing challenges. So the permissive culture that Allison is talking about, this gathering of people sharing experiences at the dream meeting, and the publication by Oxfam of a challenge that they are facing and sharing that with other donors and other partners. And that is something that I think you and I both saw a real opening across donors and partners at these meetings in October and November of 2017 that was so exciting. Yes, yes, I think that's right. And I think we asked the same questions of each other, which is how did they get here, right? Yeah, You know, the things that they were describing, there had to be a process leading up to that. What created that permissive culture? And I think that's something that we want to continue to learn about with DFID from their example and uh, from others as well. Yep, agreed. Okay, that brings us to our third set of clips. And this set of clips revolves around the question of learning on the one hand and uh, accountability on the other. Now, I do want to say that those are the terms that our uh, interviewees were using, maybe breaking it down a little bit because we've been talking a lot lately about this term accountability and that we need to rescue it from the dustbin that says that that's somehow a less important function. I think that we all would like to expand the definition of accountability to include learning. We need to be accountable for learning because if if it is axiomatic or if it is demonstrated with evidence that better learning leads to better development, we need to be accountable for that. So I think maybe if that terminology doesn't work for our listeners, they could think in terms of learning and accountability on the one hand and um, sort of routine reporting on the other. The distinction being that there are functions that we can perform that don't have the kind of programmatic impact that we want our learning to have. So again, we will hear from Carrie Albright, then Duncan Green, and we'll finish with Allison Evans. My experience from from nearly everywhere I've worked actually is that for better or worse, you have strong, charismatic champions who, um, who can carry through ideas Maybe others have tried um, anywhere um, through through their, their charisma, through their experience, through their knowledge. They they can open. But I think um, 
you know, I mean, that was partly another question around the, the power of champions. I, I think those people are really important. They're the ones that are actually going out and implementing across the organization. But no matter how effective they are, if you don't have um, a leader at the very top who recognizes the value of that, who, who gives space, time, budget um, to enable those sorts of things to happen, then inevitably you're only going to be medium to good effective rather than really trans attempt to achieve transformational change. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think really inspirational or, or visionary leaders from the very top um, have a responsibility, I would say, to, we all talk about failure fest and learning, not just PR spin, learning from um, things that don't work as well as things that do, but that's actually a very frightening thing for a lot of people who, um, who are, you know, fear that they may lose their jobs, especially in the, in the results agenda era. Um, and so I think you have a responsibility to sort of model that behavior so that others also feel that it's okay to open up and not just cherry pick the learning that they're sharing. So I think there's, there's an accountability issue and a systems issue, right? So the, the accountability issue is this is not your money, this is the public's money, and don't tell me, just give it to me and I'll think of something and come back in 20 years. You can't do that. So the best answer I've seen so far on this is an idea from the Building State Capability crew at Harvard, who've come up with what they call a search frame as an alternative to the log frame. Very, very catchy. Uh, uh, and what they say is, well, set out your log frame for the first three months or six months. And then you say, and that's when we'll have our first real-time evaluation. And then we'll, we have milestones thereafter, and we will keep you informed and we will tell you which you know, the course corrections we're doing and how we aim to get there. Now, that probably doesn't work if you're building a, you know, uh, an airport, maybe. So there are, clearly it depends on the topic, but um, it's an interesting attempt to give the security and accountability that donors require while respecting the, the, the learning and iteration and adaptation. So that's nice. The systems thinking is, is, element is really interesting. So how do you know if a change process takes 20 years, and a lot of the most interesting ones take 20 years upwards. How do you know after two years if you're on track to one of these great 20-year changes or you just squandered a load of money? And I think this is something I'm not... I'm struggling with. Um, I think there's, there must be some... In systems, the systems people talk about weak signals, that the, the initial sign of an earthquake coming, that catastrophic, the big event, is you can have weak signals which you can pick up. But I have no idea how you distinguish weak signals from misleading noise, and that's kind of really difficult. It may, you know, an Oxfam sort of rule of thumb heuristic response would be, ask the people, ask the women, find out what's going on on the ground, and that might well be a decent early signal. But we need some way of, of getting some security that this big attempt at systems change is on the right track at least. Not that there's only one track, but in going in the right direction. And that, I think, is still early days. It's, really, it's, it's a difficult question. Yes, I mean, I think it's, it's, it would be you know, foolish to say there, are, there aren't tensions there, and there definitely are tensions. I mean, I've, I've spent quite a bit of my career at various times in evaluation, and you know, the evaluation world is infused with this sort of uh, tension, in my view, between, between mm -hmm. accountability and learning. Sure. Um, 
I mean, what we've tried to do, um, particularly in the sort of most recent phase of ICAI, is is pretty much state it as this is our business model. You know, accountability is clearly our marching orders, if you like, but learning is the way we actually ultimately deliver the impact. So for us, it's a it's an insepar- they are inseparable elements of what we do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, how we communicate, how we discharge our responsibilities is always about packaging these things together. It's um, nevertheless, because we operate in a public space, um, you know, particularly in engaging with the parliamentary committee, Perceptions out there differ sometimes about how we should discharge our our responsibilities. And there are those who believe we should be only about accountability. Mm. Because in the end, what, you know, what the aid business needs really is a very firm, a firm uh, hand and, 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 you know, quite austere scrutiny. On the other hand, there are those who feel our our accountability responsibilities get in the way of that doing better. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't spend much time worrying about those things. I just get on and do, as do my fellow commissioners. We we're very comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, you know, uh, accountability without learning is a bit of an empty uh, process, really. Right. And and I think the worry is that with scrutiny, you can get to a place where if all you're doing is accountability, you end up with a, uh, in this case, the a department that becomes fit for scrutiny rather than fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And we absolutely have to make sure that they remain fit for purpose and our scrutiny helps them do that. Another great set of clips from our leaders in learning. And actually, Piers, it made me think also about that earlier paper that Andrew Natsios wrote. Um, He's a former administrator of USAID talking about the counter-bureaucracy. In what Duncan said and what Allison said, I was hearing Andrew Nazios in in the background because, you know, they're talking about public funds and a specific kind of accountability or expectations about that uh, that relates to public funds. And really, you know, Duncan's breaking it down to accounting, right? Accountability right. as as having, you know, the government needs a good account accountant, right? So really looking at how are the the funds spent and um, how that's at odds with the kind of iterative adaptive approach that we need, especially for these long-term benefits that we're trying to create over time. Um, And, you know, that was the the whole point in um, Natsios's discussion of the counter-bureaucracy and about how domestic notions of accountability having to do with delivering on budget and on time being so poorly fit to what's required in international development. Um, I think uh, Allison got to that point really clearly. I love it when she says, in essence, accountability is the driver, but learning is how we deliver the impact. And if we are focusing just on that accounting piece, we end up with a department that's fit for scrutiny, not fit for purpose. I thought that was brilliant. And um, that I think brought us to where Carrie was, where if if you're in that kind of context where the expectation is you are accounting for public funds and that means something very specific and very much focused on dollars and cents or pounds and pence or whatever it is, that against the grain of that, you need the evidence champions who will make, as she says, the space, the time, the budget in order for 
that learning focus to really be transformational, to really drive the development agenda and the development process instead of having all of that impeded by this focus on strict accounting. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's right. And it, it, all three clips come back to the point that you made um, before we listened to them, which is um, it, it's almost a trap, isn't it, to think about um, monitoring and evaluation for learning or for accountability. And as Allison said, really, they're inseparable. Um, and one without the other is, it's, it's not just that um, M&E and accountability without learning is empty, but learning without any accountability is empty because then what's the point? And I, I really liked Duncan's uh, example of this sort of finesse between yes. um, how do you meet the rigor and appropriate um, keeping people in the loop about what's going on while also being open to adaptability. Coming back to what you were saying at the beginning about adaptive management. So how do you uh, meet both of those goals? Because actually they are inseparable. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think we still have a lot of work to do in how we talk about accountability for being learning focused and using adaptive management to make sure that we, the work that we do stays really well fit to context and well fit to the best knowledge that we have access to. So let me ask you a question, Stacy. How can we support um, breaking down this, this misnomer between the two? Um, is it like what you were saying at the beginning that it is around, um, we should be accountable for learning and, and sharing what we are learning as well as how we are spending our funds? Yeah, I think it's very much that. And I, I always want to bring it back to this point about process, right? If we are going to be accountable for learning, if we're going to be accountable for um, knowing what is coming out of research institutes and out of evaluations, as well as knowing what's coming from implementation on the ground and um, what our intended beneficiaries are saying about their experience on the receiving end of our efforts, then we need to build in the right processes in order to do that. And that means putting more time into the pause and reflect, giving staff more time to grapple with different kinds of evidence, elevating the status of some kinds of evidence that often get, get ignored. Um, oftentimes that is local learning. And really looking at our processes and saying, are we asking the right questions? Yes, we will convene with our partners. Are we asking them accountability kinds of questions in that narrow sort of accounting focus? Or are we asking about accountability for broader learning? What And, and supporting that, you know, not in a way that is blaming people for not being up to speed on the mountains of new evidence that, that come out, but really looking at how we can support everybody in synthesizing what's there, sharing it in ways that are effective and helping people understand the implications for their programs and then making the space and the culture and uh, putting the resources against translating that into programmatic decisions. Yeah, and, and that's that's the big challenge, isn't it? Marrying both of them. I, I think back to um, Kerry's quote about leaders who need to, the evidence leaders who need to 
be open to and model um, both approaches. And, you know, in my case, so leading a contract um, that is supporting USAID, it is, I am accountable to say, here's how we spent the funds that you gave us. Mm -hmm. But I am also accountable to sharing with you what we are learning as a result of the activities we're carrying out. That's right. And we have to have both of those. That's right. Yeah. And we've talked a lot elsewhere about how on our end, we try to be accountable for making space for you to tell us when things that we're attached to really are things that we should not be attached to, you know, when they're not learning and we need to do something different. So, and that's not usually how we think about it in development, but I think those approaches that we bring to accountability have helped our work a lot. Absolutely. It's been, um, it's been refreshing. It's not necessarily the norm, but what's exciting is that we're seeing um, in a lot of the, the contracts and the efforts that um, USAID is working with and other implementing partners, more of this symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. between the implementing partner and the donor, or what USAID might call its suppliers and themselves, that really is focused less on are you doing exactly what was in the proposal or in the contract and more on what are you learning, what's working, and how can we ensure that we focus on those things that we know are working. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's that culture piece and how valuable that is. All of this also, though, makes me want to amplify a bit the focus on knowledge management. You know, a number of our, our leaders who we interviewed talked explicitly and specifically about knowledge management as a subset of the broader learning agenda. And I think that's really important because if we are going to be accountable for understanding the latest and best evidence and learning, then our knowledge management systems and processes need to work better than they do. There's just so much out there. And I often wonder, you know, as we sit here talking with each other, who's out there implementing something that is destined for failure and that has already been demonstrated and they just don't know that because there hasn't been the time and the space and the funding and the other resources put to the knowledge management piece and the learning piece and how can we do a better job being accountable for that yeah and that ties back to what Carrie was saying and and about UNICEF and how they see that there's a real value to um, becoming knowledge brokers and this understanding that um, it, it ties in with what the agency, what USAID is doing, looking at this this idea of moving towards self-reliance. And if we can, if we are to be knowledge brokers, then, as Carrie said, we must invest in those processes, yeah. in those systems, and in those approaches if mm-hmm. that's going to happen. And in the people who need to carry the development agenda forward for their own countries, invest in their learning. And, and that also means listening to them about what their learning needs are. Yeah, I think that's really important, Piers. It also made me think about Duncan's example as an example where a lot of donors were putting a lot of public funds You know, if you want to take an accountability for public funds perspective to it, putting a lot of public funds into water projects that were not working well. And again, that relationship between learning and knowledge management and being good stewards of public funds. 
So if you were that knowledge manager out there struggling with something that you were worried could be that failure you were just talking about, how would, what would you counsel them to do? Well, of course, one thing they can do is look to the resources that are available on knowledge management and learning. So km for dev is uh, one wonderful repository. Fantastic. Obviously, usaidlearninglab.org is a great place to look, but also looking within their organizations and the leaders or the would-be leaders, those evidence champions Carrie was talking about, um, and seeing how to support those people. You know, several of our interviewees talked about the importance of champions in inspiring and leading and providing a vision for really strong and effective learning and knowledge management and using knowledge as a development resource. So how can we support those people within our organizations or how can we even become those people within our our organizations? I think that's the advice that I would give to those struggling knowledge managers Yes, absolutely. And those of you who listened to episode two of this podcast will recall me sharing the story of the Global Health Knowledge Collaborative back in uh, 2010, which really felt like uh, a support group for knowledge managers who were coming together, sharing what was working, what wasn't, and and where they were having challenges. And it uh, um, that was that was back in the day when we had to justify who we are. And now I think um, we, we don't have to lurk in the shadows, but we're still here ready to help others. So if you have challenges, reach out to km for dev as Stacy said, reach out to usalearninglab.org or reach out to us. Piers, I think we're out of time for today's episode, but I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you and to thank our contributing thought leaders for today's episode, Allison Evans, Carrie Albright, and Duncan Green, and also to thank Amy Leo, our intrepid podcast producer, and the Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning, which helped resource this series. Until next time, thank you for joining us on the Leaders in Learning podcast. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn, implemented by DEXIS Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Poddington Bear.